It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd also like to mention that if you miss one of our conversations or our interviews here on Moment of Truth, you can always uh, go to your favorite podcasting streaming platform and, and listen to them there at your leisure on those sites. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the show the Honorable Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relationships, uh, Relations rather, and also the MP for Toronto St. Paul's. Uh, Minister, welcome back to the show. So great to be back. Well, here we are. It is 2021. And uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, and here's to a way better 2021. (laughs) Let's let's certainly hope so. And speaking of that, there's a number of things which uh, fall within uh, the categories that you cover uh, that are, I guess, uh, really front and center in so many ways. The the vaccine that is rolling out across the country now with uh, so many of those vaccines, there's so many of them now, actually, more and more as we hear uh, coming on board, which I believe is a good thing because it'll allow the the application of the vaccine vaccines to roll out perhaps quicker. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. And I think certainly as we uh, realize the different uh, characteristics of the various vaccines that certain have been uh, um, better for really urban areas uh, like Mm. the Pfizer vaccine. But but, you know, it's been it's been really impressive to see the the rural and remote communities uh, aware of how the Moderna vaccine was more appropriate for them and uh, and to see that that work being done. Uh, I think we're also really pleased to see that the National Advisory Committee on Immunization um, really did make uh, Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Inuit and Métis a priority Mm -hmm. and that the provinces and territories are are working well with Indigenous partners to make that happen. Now, as you say, the Moderna is one of those vaccines that is easily, uh, more easily shipped. And and so that helps in terms of the distribution to get it to some of the remote communities. And of course, you mentioned Indigenous communities. And that's good to hear. Here, I, I think there's a there's another new one that that we just heard about that that transports even better than possibly the Moderna. It just has to be kept at refrigerated temperatures. Is Moderna the same? Yes, and I. But also, I think that the the one of the one that's that's being looked at by Health Canada um, may only be one shot. So mm. these other two vac- vaccines require. Um, a booster shot uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, within, a, you know, weeks. Uh, and in in that even though the first shot seems to be very, very effective, yes. um, we don't know how long that will last. Right. You know, and I think that the National Advisory Committee will come out with, a, you know, its best advice on this and uh, we'll, we'll just keep going. And it's uh, but it's been very impressive to to see the frontline workers and the vulnerable populations already getting uh, shots in their arms. 
Well, as you know, uh, the the indigenous population and communities, some of those isolated communities, if they have an outbreak because they are perhaps remote and or fly in, uh, if an outbreak happens, it can be quite disastrous to uh, the community. With the vaccines and with the, these vaccines, especially if you say it's a, a sing, potentially a single uh, shot, that would be of uh, great benefit to those communities because weather can affect the, even the, the idea of uh, getting these vaccines to some of these communities exactly and i i think david it was when i was in in southern sudan where where the docs were explaining the the importance of cold chain meaning that you have to be able to keep um vaccines at a certain temperature Mm. uh whether that's frozen or whether that's refrigerated and that you have to ensure that in every aspect whether it's on the plane in mm. the truck in the that 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 cold chain be preserved and yeah. so i think that's been really important and the the issue around protecting elders making sure that the long-term care that the the elders residences that the first nations health managers uh, all uh, and the docs and david i i just want to share with you that i think since March every Thursday night from uh, 8.30 to almost 10, I've had the honor of of meeting with some of the Indigenous physicians coast to coast to coast who are are on the front line of COVID. And uh, as they share their challenges, as they share their 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 successes to me it's just been uh, totally inspiring they are able to report back exactly those challenges and and what what's happening uh, in community uh, there on the front lines one of the other things david has been the issue of, of systemic racism and how mm. they have been reporting back long before the de- death of joyce eshaquan the mm. the problems that that not only they their patients were facing but but they themselves as patients sometimes faced and and the the racism that they almost all of them faced when they were in medical school so you know this uh, covid has really um sort of unveiled some of these really dark aspects of 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 our society and uh these these are things that as well as the mental health challenges uh violence that Mm. we're going to have to address um going forward as we as we enter 2021 hopefully with with fresh eyes right Uh, you mentioned systemic racism and i'm just wondering in your office uh is there is there a role for your office to play in terms of as you just mentioned, uh, speaking to these doctors, the indigenous doctors across the country, uh, but it's also about the patients and about care. Um, is there a role for your office to play in this? My office, but also the Val Gideon, Dr. Val Gideon mm. in the office of, uh, of Minister Mark Miller. Um, after the death of Joyce Eshaquan, we uh, convened a summit um, uh, in November, uh, in which these indigenous physicians shared their stories, uh, their their truth, uh, um, with all of the organizations across the country that have the levers to put in place the prevention, put in place the data collection, put in place the consequences for for bad behavior, uh, and uh, so the colleges and the hospitals and the medical associations and nursing. Um, association. So we will reconvene um, uh, at the end of this month where we hope that 
all of those organizations will come forward with a uh, with a plan um, that will will really begin to to address this issue in a in a concrete way. I think people like Dr. Lisa Richardson here at the University Health Network Women's College, you know, has wrote a very, very poignant piece in the Globe and Mail. And I I think what we need to do is to to listen um, to um, the those that not only have been affected by this systemic racism in health systems, but also um, know exactly what needs to be done. Hmm. You know, it, it kind of ties in with uh, some of the things that have been raised. As you say, COVID has brought out uh, many dark areas, but perhaps, and let's hope that it also allows us to, as you say, and as you were saying about yourself, getting together to, to talk about these issues and, and put in place uh, things that can actually address it and resolve it and, and get this moving in a positive way for the future. But I want to go back to, you know, National Chief Perry Belgard has mentioned about the gap and, and you know, filling that gap and, and, and making sure that that, that gap is, is uh, narrowed and, and hopefully eliminated within uh, the Indigenous uh, community. And I'm just wondering about what you think about the concerns that's, that are still out there, that, that still you know, affect the Indigenous community, uh, right from the, the racism, systemic racism, but also just the gaps in education. You know, I, I mean, there's still, we still have issues with boiling water in communities as well. Absolutely. And I think that when we look at gaps, we're looking at outcomes. We're looking at it, that it is the health outcomes, education outcomes, economic outcomes. And and it also speaks uh, uh, to the need for self-determination for for First Nations, Inuit and Métis to be able to design their own systems that work for them. And, uh, you know, we look at uh, outcomes in um, high school leaving and that 20 years ago when the uh, when the Mi'kmaq were able to to take control of their education system high school leaving was at 30 percent um now it's at 95 percent it's it's at the national a- average mm-hmm. uh, or better and so the, it, we this isn't just a um uh, the right thing to do is the thing that also mm. gets results. Right. And, and I think that's what we're finding when with systemic racism, that if people won't go to hospital because they had a bad experience the last time that, that delays their access and it, and it really diminishes the results. And so, uh, you know, I think Mary Ellen Trapella-Fon's report in British Columbia is is very important. I, I'm really pleased that uh, she will be able to do a briefing for Minister Miller and myself next week um, in terms of what she observed in British Columbia. But we we I know in in speaking with her that she she knows this is this is a a real challenge coast to coast to coast. Mm. Uh, some of those things you, you've mentioned that we've also been talking about uh, tie in very well with the now the fifth year uh, uh, anniversary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and their calls to action. You know, I, I know we've had some guests on the show over the last couple of years, and I would say over the last year that 
have all had to do with the truth, truth and reconciliation uh, calls to action. The implementation of those things looks like it's starting to, and I'm happy to say, are, are starting to happen in some very interesting ways. Education. Um, you know, we've had uh, professors, we've had uh, institutions that come on and talk about, we've had lawyers from Alberta who are taking those recommendations and calls to action and, and implementing them, uh, you know, requiring it, uh, learning to learn about indigenous people and the history which are all great do you do you still consider those calls to action uh, uh, vital and do you still think that that everyone should be moving forward with them absolutely and i was you know i i think that it was such a thoughtful piece of work that really engages really all all governments all sectors but particularly all Canadians. And I think that we're seeing Canadians understanding, you know, what, what we never learned in school. Mm. Um, that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the trauma of, of residential schools, the, the, what happens when you lose your language, lose your culture, and as, as, as Justice Sinclair would say, and lose your way. Um, if you're not proud of who you are. And so what I think in various situations was thought to be some nicety uh, added to a university campus or added um, to a, a school system in a region, that that, that ability to, to really connect with uh, language, culture, um, uh, land-based learning, uh, these are the kinds of things that I think are going to make a real difference, not only to First Nations, Inuit and Métis, but to all Canadians as as we um, as we have to undo some of the, the really bad colonial practices that were based in the perception of European superiority and actually sort of erased the really important lessons um, of 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 the environment of of pedagogy of of a medical model instead of the medicine wheel. This is a this is I think an opportunity for us to all learn and um, and commit to doing better. We we believe uh, that of the ninety four calls to action that uh, um, it, it directly or um, partially implicated the. Canadian government, we're, we're either done or well on our way with 80% of them. But we know that reconciliation is a, is a journey, not a destination. We are going to have to continue to listen um, and, and, and with course corrections as, as it will be too easy to veer off the path um, to what looks efficient instead of what is a good way forward. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very optimistic just because, you know, even in, in here in Toronto, St. Paul's, the, the number of, of constituents who want to make sure we're doing the right thing by clean water, by, by um, listening um, about climate change and, and thinking seven generations out. So it's, um, I think that we, we are um, doing better um, but there's still so much work to do. 
And certainly, certainly getting the communities uh, with fresh water was is only the first step. That's something basic that everyone should should have always had. Anyway, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. You can also listen to Moment of Truth on all of your favorite uh, uh, podcasting uh, streaming platforms. My guest is the Honorable Carolyn Bennett, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations and MP for Toronto St. Paul's. It's a pleasure to have her back on the show. And, you know, Minister, you mentioned about the, the trauma and self-determination that has shown the, uh, the, the, the benefits of, of how once Indigenous people uh, have that control, that, that it can uh, really help to uh, move things forward, to get the, as you say, the education, uh, the students uh, uh, coming, getting up to the standards uh, as per the rest of, of Canada and having successes in those areas. Now, that's, that, of course, it, it goes back that trauma is related to as we say the the residential school and that relates to the truth and reconciliation commission and their their uh, calls to action that are trying to be implemented the the other thing I'm wondering about and it's something that has come back and it's reared its head uh, in the last little while. Um, I know that your office was contacted to 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 maybe go out and uh, try to meet with uh, the people at Landback or at Mackenzie Meadows in Caledonia, which you know relates back to the situation in in 2006 with the Douglas Creek Estates, and and I, I'm guessing that. Many people, along with myself, I thought that this would have been dealt with and is something that, uh, you know, we could have uh, perhaps had it dealt with uh, correctly at the time. But we see that it's back and uh, there are people there, of course, at Landback Lane, and they've been uh, they've been uh, on that site for for a number of months. And I know your office was contacted to maybe come out and meet, but. All of this stuff ties into the history. It ties into what we're talking about. And and what I mean by that is, you know, I I know a lot of people don't understand the situation in Caledonia and on Six Nations, for instance, that the government, there's a governance issue there um, because there's not only an elected system, which was brought in in 1924, but there's also the Haudenosaunee traditional leadership. And quite often there's a there, there's a, a discrepancy between the two uh, because one is an elected system and some people view that elected system as an arm of the government um, the elect the Haudenosaunee leadership of course is more is a traditional and a lot of people in the community follow the traditional uh, views and values of that uh, of their community and so sometimes this is I guess what's going on with it's about the land it's about uh, having right to the land and that development. What is your sense of the situation at this point in time? Well, thank, thanks for for that excellent explanation of, of really um, how, again, as a, Canada as a partner, but also with Ontario, with the, the, the authorities with respect to land, that, and but also the governance between the elected chief and council and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, that this is a this is this is a really important um, 
effort to go forward in a good way and for us to make sure that we create the space for what the elected chief and council and Mark Hill are 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 putting as a priority the harmony and unity within the community and to make sure that that the governance will reflect the will of the community in in that in a in a way that that honors the traditional um uh ways and customs and laws so this is a i think uh in all of our conversations uh with uh um with the the community i think that we are very optimistic uh, that we will have uh be able to um for minister miller and i to receive an invitation um by the the community to to go and and visit or to be able to visit virtually at the beginning uh to be able to to work together on on these these issues that have been present for far too long so um i am uh, optimistic that we're making progress and that uh and that uh um that that there is a, a willingness within the community to resolve these issues uh such that the community uh will feel that they they have a voice and 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 which will be represented in their relationship with Canada and with Ontario. Hmm. You, you know, in in the spirit of of moving forward as a, as a country uh, with the TRC that we've just mentioned as well, um, these these out ongoing issues are troublesome for everyone. I, I think that you know it affects a lot of people, both in, in Caledonia on Six Nations, and it reflects in that that uh, relationship that we have as Canadians, uh, you know, on both sides and, and from both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, but also, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's something that just uh, is, you know, people say it's not our issue or, you know, it's, it's an internal issue, but, but really it's affecting everyone. And so it, we, I don't think we can stand by and say it's not one one party's issue or one, you know, everybody has to get involved to resolve this because it is affecting all of us. Absolutely. And I think that that is that is the way that uh, coming together in a circle, coming together to to hear everybody out and be able to to, to speak with respect uh, and 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 that sort of assured listening um it's i i think that uh, these these difficult um situations um will lead to to the kind of solutions that that will be helpful uh coast to coast to coast as to how people have come together i think that with the Helsic community with some of the communities in british columbia where they've developed a a hybrid of a uh, of a governance model that that is is the will of the people the will of the members and uh and that uh and as they um move forward on a, on a, a core um treaty or agreement with Canada that this is the way we will work together in the future and uh, and I'm I'm very inspired by the kind of work that's happening um, with the BC policy because with the willing partner of the BC government um, to be able to work on issues such as land and title. And, and uh, this, this 
this hopefully will lead um, to, you know, a, a new day, which is based on on that that recognition of rights, respect, cooperation and partnership uh, that the prime minister put into the mandate letters of every single minister of our government um, that you can't go forward on anything unless you're less, uh, unless you're respecting indigenous rights. Mm. Uh, Minister, is there anything else you, you can think of that might be important for the upcoming year that, that uh, you'd like to mention that you might be working on? Well, I, I, I think that it is obviously that we're very inspired by the work that um, that the you know over a hundred indigenous mainly women are are doing towards a national action plan on missing and murdered indigenous women and mm. girls. I think that to, to have uh, Gina Wilson um, mm. as the co-chair of that group, but Sylvia Maracle here from Toronto with the with the working group on Two Spirited, Diane Redsky in Manitoba on the urban issues uh, group, uh, a data group. Uh, this is and and the the work that Hilda Perez is is doing um, with families and survivors at the center of our work. I think that this has been um, really important as we go forward uh, with all the provinces and territories to respond to the first ever uh, national inquiry, um, which requires all jurisdictions to respond in and also uh, obviously indigenous governments and and organizations as well so i think that will be a important step forward we promise not to let the families and survivors down but we know it's ongoing and that uh, this you know racism and sexism in justice policing as we've talked about in health in in education uh post-secondary that 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 all of this work the concrete measures to stop that trajectory will actually will will chart a path forward as did the 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 calls to action for the truth and reconciliation commission Mm. minister it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today well, thank you so much, David. Just keep up the great work and uh, hopefully do this again soon. I think that would be great. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's the voice of Carolyn Bennett, the Honourable Carolyn Bennett, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, MP for Toronto St. Paul's. And she was our guest here on this part of the show. Always a pleasure to have her and always a pleasure to have you listening to the show each and every day. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two uh, L- those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And also, if you happen to miss one of our conversations that we have here on Moment of Truth, you can find them on all your podcasting streaming platforms, so please look for us there for your convenience. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Catherine Minich. She's a professor in the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University in Ottawa. Catherine, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. Mm-hmm. So it's the fifth anniversary of the TRC, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I understand that is something that uh, you have perspectives on, but also understand that it's something that your students that you work with also utilize in your classroom quite a bit. Yes, we do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And what, and what do you mean by perspectives on the fifth anniversary of the TRC? Well, um, first I'll, I'll situate um, myself in the classroom. So I, I teach in a program that's called uh, Indigenous Policy and Administration. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, it's a graduate program. Uh, I teach with the graduate uh, diploma students. And so these are students who have... Um, you know, already come to the program with a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. and they are looking to either work in the public service or working in a band council. Um, There's a bit of a blend of of Indigenous and non-Indigenous students who come to the program. And so for many of them, and I'm going to include myself in this for as an Indigenous scholar, the truth and reconciliation calls to action are really important pieces because they represent the voices of the survivors. Mm. And in doing policy work, it's a very important piece to bring into an understanding or an analysis or a recommendation, I feel, in, in my work as a scholar, to bring the voices of what the people want. And Indigenous voices have been skirted over so many times and with such violence in the Mm. past that I find this a really important part. What I talk about in different perspectives here is because we're now dealing with bureaucracies that have specializations. We've got child and family workers. We have court workers. um, You have educators, different facets of, of justice. So being able to address those multiple perspectives into what then becomes this big envelope of public, of what's this public policy and who is this public. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, of course, to hear you address it in that way. Uh, I know, for instance, we've had guests on the show here, for instance, in in the law end of things, and they are starting to implement some of those uh, findings and and things that came out of the TRC as well. So it's nice to hear that business, law, education uh, are starting to, you know, take that and run with it and start to implement some of these things. I guess... What are you finding from your your students' perspective in terms of what they hope to uh, take from this and and move forward? Because, as you say, it's the voices of the survivors, and and it's it's important to the entire country. This isn't just about the survivors, although it is the voices of the survivors, as you pointed out. It's about moving the country forward on these fronts. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of challenges. I think students are in this really, like, it's a treasure to be... um, a teacher and an instructor at a space when students are pursuing knowledge. So they're pursuing something to, to fill up gaps that they are aware of and then learn about other gaps that they weren't necessarily aware of. Mm. If anything, that's been my pursuit of, of education has been what, <laughs> what is this sort of right. area um, and, and learning. So I think that the, um, just to collect my thoughts about that one, it means that as students are gathering pieces of information and they're they're learning um, what what they're coming what they learn about. So there's this okay. 
Wow. <laughs> There's an interesting space <laughs> in working with students because some of them come um, with the lived experience. Mm. Uh, and I know as an instructor, as when I was a student and now as an instructor, I come with that lived experience. My mother went to a residential school. And so I grew up with that and I understand intergenerational trauma. I understand what it's like to work through that. Mm. And I'm also a second generation city dweller or a first generation city dweller. I know my children are the second generation mm. city folks. Mm-hmm. So it's um, coming to, you know, fit in all of these diversities of, of this indigenous identity and, and pull it together. So I think what students, when I work with them and, and the truth and reconciliation calls to action is they, the dynamics can be hard to fit together. And also different students are at different stages of learning. I think because I'm teaching graduate students, they come with, um, they don't come with the rose-colored glasses of Canada as this amazing country and aren't we this outstanding democracy and mm. inclusion kinds of things because they are aware of the Indigenous policy history. Right. So it's it's great to work with students who come with that level of awareness. But mm. now, as you mentioned, you know, how are we going to push the relationship with governments, with the, all the institutions and bureaucracies to improve now let's improve these this time like let's improve this uh, short-term vision and how can we put this into long-term visions and address the cultural needs as well as some of those basic needs about water mm-hmm. <laughs> education um, economics you know so there's I think what's challenging is to have this expectation that we can plug students into a system and off they can run with it. No, it's a really, the system doesn't have all these intentions built into it yet. So they need to start plugging in parts of those more effective ways. Um, and, and it's and it's so various. Um, mm. We work with students from Cree Nation in Quebec, um, Algonquin Nations, in Ontario, as well as Quebec, students from Newfoundland and Labrador, from Nunavut, uh, from Saskatchewan, from BC. So there's a diversity of those Indigenous governance issues that come into the classroom. Uh, that's pretty fascinating. And it's great to hear that variety that you're getting from right across the country, because, as we know, uh, Indigenous communities and, uh, and and nations are not only not speak all the same language and they're all different in that regard from cultural uh, perspectives but uh, just from uh, their their idea of well they're they're nations they're separate nations and that's that's the point is that we need to get that word out there and that needs to be front and center in so many ways that that people still have somewhat of a stereotypical view of of indigenous people, uh, First Nation people, um, Inuit people, etc., uh, Métis, etc., those kind of things. And so, you know, the, the, I wrote down two worlds because it uh, mm-hmm. it seems to be, and you're, I know what you're, you're going to say, it's a very familiar uh, uh, thing that, that indigenous people find themselves having to deal with dealing with that two worlds i think that for students 
that you are dealing with in terms of not only those two worlds, but there's that added world that they're into, as you say, the educational system doesn't have all the answers. So there's a discovery of that as well. Mm, the, the educational space that students are in mm. is, you know, in preparing for this interview, I was thinking about my experience when I was an undergraduate and, and doing a, a graduate degree as well. And um, thinking about what were those, the structures that helped me succeed and, you know, seeing the gaps that students who are coming into the programs also need to support, right? There, there, it's not complete yet. It, it's definitely universities were never intending to educate mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples. And <laughs> so seeing this generation growing a critical um, global awareness, uh, as well as gaining knowledge about who the state is and, and how do they act and interact with people is pretty fascinating. Yeah. At the same time, it can be, um, you know, clashes, right? It sure. c- can clash with what we think government is supposed to do and, and how it's supposed to act. And and then, gosh, you want to change it? <laughs> what, you know, actions and activities and, and skills are needed to to formulate um, an approach or a strategy to address, you know, how to change a policy mm. and its direction. Mm. And how long have you been uh, teaching the, this uh, at Carleton? Um, I started at Carleton in July 2019, mm-hmm. um, but I do come with a little bit of experience because I was teaching at, at McMaster University in yeah. the Indigenous Studies program right. after a few years before. Okay. Now, uh, your students, what what do you think they're hoping to do with, as you say, they're going to go off, they're going to work maybe at some First Nation, maybe band councils, those kind of things. Where do you think this will help in the future in terms of what they're going to take from the knowledge they're learning and working with uh, to expand and help with the TRC? I think what's helpful in the classroom setting to churn over the calls to action from the TRC and to understand where they're coming from. In a classroom setting, we have the benefit of learning from other nations. And I think it's that peer-to-peer learning that is something that's really unique about, you know, being in university or it's about a little bit about how this program in Indigenous policy and administration is designed because it has this diversity of voices Uh, and diversities of Indigenous nations who can come together and talk about how this works, not only within their nations, within their networks, within their different backgrounds. I think that's something we haven't had before, right? This is something that a public institution like a university can facilitate is this dialogue and bringing together of students from different places. Like we're from the same places, but we are from different (laughs) contexts and different Mm -hmm. situations. And I think being able to learn from, um, you know, uh, an administrator and a a social worker and a geographer, we've had a a biologist in in my, I've had a biologist in my program who's, who has a history of studying moose. And of course, we can learn from that and we can learn that perspective and and that can then help inform the strategies and reduce the isolation. I think a lot of First Nations, Inuit and, and Métis governance issues are operating in this strange critical space 
um, and crises areas. So I think it's a relief to break that um, silence and being able to look at how uh, and what are some of the strengths of, of other places and how they're able to bring uh, information into their nations. Right. You mentioned also that lived experience that you yourself bring to the classroom as an instructor and a professor uh, because of your own experience, your mother having gone to residential school, as you say, you're uh, the first generation to live in the city, you now have children that are second generation. As an instructor and a professor, how do you think that experience benefits your ability in the classroom with your students and and how important do you think that experience is for someone like yourself that is in a position of uh, working with the policies you're talking about with the with working with students that are going to go out and work within the communities uh, work at band councils etc work with areas that are that they're going to be obviously coming up with uh, other people that have have had that lived experience? Well, I got to tell you, it, can, it has um, some exhausting points to it, for sure. Mm. I, I find it difficult at times to take on teaching modules about residential school history because it's still, I'm still a human being in, at the, mm. this side of the desk, mm. at this side of my keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, it is still hard to hear to read and to listen to accounts of the difficulties um, that young men and and women had that these children uh, experienced. Mm. So I find sometimes that, that exhaustion, you know, reaches the bottom. I give a lot, Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot when I, when I'm doing that. And I think, the topic area deserves that attention. Right. Um, so, so it's absolutely like, this is truth telling, right? This yeah. is uh, right. an exercise in getting out this knowledge and, and getting out um, an awareness of how damaging these policies right. were and, and how damaging policies can be, right. right? Just because they've stopped happening doesn't mean the damage is gone. Right. So I find that, you know, for myself personally, I, you know, it's about finding that that sweet spot where, you know, I'm comfortable sharing from here up. And I try to tell this to my students as well, because I'm sensitive to that, because I know I've gone gone through this. And so helping students um, identify, you know, where they can share. And also, I do my best to try to identify the institutional supports because I'm meeting people as students and there are student supports. That's a benefit of working within a large institution mm-hmm. uh, to be able to, to make sure that um, other spots for dialogue and other things that might come up um, for them can, can be opened up. I do find it really um really unique and really humbling too when students can have that sidebar with me and say, hey, I went through a similar thing or thank you for talking about that. I hadn't heard it in that perspective before. Mm. Or just that they can see a part of themselves in the classroom. And that's something um, that's really important for students to see, for for young people to be able to see a part. And that's something that, of those invisible structures, right, that need to be in place so that we can 
um, our university can intentionally be that space for Indigenous scholars to develop. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also catch our our, our uh, uh, interviews on all of your uh, podcasting uh, streaming uh, sites. So uh, please do, by all means, uh, go and look for Moment of Truth uh, if you've missed something uh, of our previous conversations and interviews. My guest is Catherine Minich. She's a professor in the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to have her on the show. And we're talking about uh, what she does in the classroom. And we've been talking in a large degree about the truth and Reconciliation Commission and uh, their call to actions that she is implementing within her classroom with her students. Uh, She comes with the experience of having the background of having a mother that has gone through the uh, residential school system and she's a first generation dweller in the city as she pointed out earlier in the show. Catherine, you also talk about, you talked about the North, and I understand that you you have, I, I guess, some connections or some dealings with the North, what's going on in, in, the, in Nunavut and uh, Kaluit, those kind of places? Yes, um, my family are from the Okomute region, which is South Baffin Island, and mm. my mother, um, I guess the community of, of attachment is Pangertung, mm. and so that's just one community north of Iqaluit on Baffin Island in Nunavut. Okay, and and so when did you move from there south? Oh, wow. It's, um, how long do you have? <laughs> it's, um, I, I often, you know, r- relate to this, my mother was still very nomadic um, mm. when she was bringing us up, um, wow. you know, having moved a lot in different transitions back and forth. But one place that um, we settled when I was in grade five, we moved to um, Montreal because she mm. landed a job mm. as a medical interpreter wow. um, for what was then uh, Baffin Health Services, I think. Mm. And it um, so that was when we, we moved to, to Montreal um, as a as a full time long term sort of Montrealer right. uh, life, yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, and so now, it, with what you're doing, um, you have some publications as well uh, dealing with Inuit housing and homelessness. I understand, and also you you, you looked at uh, birth outcomes and infant yeah. mortality and First Nation and Inuit, both uh, with Indigenous and non-Indigenous women uh, in Northern versus so- Southern mm-hmm. residences. Yes. Yes. Um, I have had the fortune of working with, um, in the midwifery paper, with some statisticians who were looking at the birth records, but they didn't have the interpretation of the data. So, I, I had an opportunity to get involved in, uh, you know, not only as a sort of sociologist and uh, I have a 
background in health information. So knowing how to read the data mm. was helpful. Uh, but then being able to provide this historical context about childbirth, um, you know, it's something that Inuit had a lot of independence about and mm. skills and abilities. And then there was an abrupt turn to evacuations of pregnant women to give birth. And it's such a disruptive experience um, and mm. also very isolating uh, for them. Mm. There was some activity to create a birthing center. So the study was working at um, doing an, a solid analysis to explore whether or not um, midway, midwifery births or evacuated births um, had any differences. And the data supports that there were no differences in the types of birth. Um, so they were successful births. Mm. If they were unsuccessful or complicated births, it happened under both scenarios. Mm. And um, it also, that that paper had exposed a few challenges as well with data. And there's a, you know, a bigger part of, of data sovereignty issues across Canada with Indigenous data because they could not identify uh, who were Inuit necessarily in the the data sets, but they could do it by maternal, by mother tongue. Mm. So they were able to pull out if Inuktitut was the mother tongue language on birth, cer birth certificates, that's how they were able to trace Mm. Then um, the number of Inuit births and compare um, the midwif midwifery births compared to the um, physician births. Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the independence that the Inuit had around these areas. And, and I guess that goes back to some of the other things that you uh, research and, and focus on, the practice of Indigenous self-determination in community and uh, self-determination uh, in, in, in Nunavut uh, itself. Um, how, how do your practices and policies uh, in what you're doing reflect that? Um, again, um as I practice in the classroom by bringing in strong instruments like the TRC to bring in that voice mm -hmm. of the indigenous community and the, you know, and then these like subsets, right? So we're talking not only about the indigenous community, but we're talking about residential school survivors. We can talk about language speakers. We can talk about like different types of um, practices. Uh, if they're hunters, mm -hmm. if they are, um, you know, in the workforce, if they're leaders. So by bringing the Indigenous voice into the classroom helps me to bring Indigenous voice in, into a policy place. And that becomes an awesome, wicked problem. Uh, wicked problem being there's so many uh, variables in place. It's not a linear experience of mm. policy. Um, some things are fixed, such as electoral cycles. Um, mm. But the other parts of, of those policy building blocks can be moved around. And more and more, as you see with self-government agreements, such as the one that's configured in Nunavut, but you also have other agreements across Inuit Nunangat, across all of the homelands. There are four different you know, agreements and different movements towards what self-government looks like for Inuit regions. And despite all these 
parts that seem broken up, I try to look for overarching themes that advance self-determination. And that is bringing out how the Inuit people, whether that be the citizens, the different types of workers, um, these can be municipal workers, um, talking about the infrastructures and challenges in their communities, Mm. uh, the municipal leaders, people who are elected um, to mayors or, or councils, uh, and the work of different committees or, or nonprofit societies, women's auxiliaries, bringing those diversities of voices so that they can have a space in identifying what's happening in policy. Mm. What are their visions for healthier communities? What are their visions for taking on mental health challenges? What are their solutions towards overcrowded housing? So I feel like as an academic, this is part of my research skill, being able to bring those different voices and being able to present them back to uh, different audiences, whether this is going to be federal government, uh, whether this is going to be other academics, you know, by publishing papers and journals, right. uh, or whether it is bringing that into the classroom so that, you know, upcoming generations of policy workers, policy analysts can source out what the voices and the needs that are expressed in those voices are. Speaking of voices and needs, you know, the other thing that I, I see you kind of dabble with is the the policy spaces in cash and non-cash political mm-hmm. economies and, and uh, policy processes in the community. We don't necessarily think, you know, every day about about cash and non-cash we're so strapped to the uh, mm-hmm. to, to the dollar and of course that northern uh, perspective and i guess to some degree in in some even first nation communities where they are still there's still the hunting there's still the gathering going on and those kind of things so how does that tie in with what you do well this is um thank you for bringing that up i definitely um see that that's a space for not only for self-determination, but it's um, such a healthy mm. place for for people to be active in, mm. right? And, and hunting is not only a physically active, but like mentally yeah. engaging <laughs> activity. I yeah. have, you know, silly stories of holding a gun on a boat. And so the boat is wobbling, right? Because it's going, it's in the water. Yep. But then the seal is wobbling too, because it's in the water. And somehow <laughs> you two have to have this mental connection, Man. you know, and gratitude to be able to fulfill, right? This transaction, because yeah. the seal is giving itself to you. It's saying, sure. here's this, here's my moment here. Yes. Here we are. Yes. And, um, you know, so to be able to to complete that that interaction, you know, it's amazing. It's it's yeah. just um, you know really something that sticks with me in terms of now seeing the information of how much meat protein, yeah, um, and nutrient dense healthy foods are available through um, the practices of hunting. And bringing that food to the table is really important to to everybody's well-being, but especially children, right? The kids need to have healthy food to be able to take on and grow and develop, you know, so their bodies aren't, you know, in that sort of life course perspective, uh, receiving early deficits that are going to take, you know, maybe later result in some chronic illnesses that, Mm. you know, than are sustained throughout their their life course or lifetime. Mm. Um, But I think the value of 
of hunting and fishing and gathering is, you know, it, it sits outside of this, the, I mean, it's, it's impacted by capitalism for sure. Cause we need a gun and a boat and, mm. and all those things, but it's also in and of itself retains really important self-determination qualities. It mm-hmm. is in. It has a continuity that has remained um, throughout, and I think that the value that brings um, as a system of exchange, as a system of uh, survival, uh, you know, is really important to to continue to look at and continue to at least name as a very important part of an ongoing modern Inuit society. Mm. Catherine, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and and share uh, what you do at Carleton University through your uh, public policy and administration uh, uh, courses at uh, at Carleton University. And it's really been nice. You know, I can't help but reflect as you were talking on many of the things that you're talking about the North because I had the pleasure of actually going to the North a couple of times years ago when I worked with uh, APTN and they sent me up to Iqaluit uh, uh, as well as um, as um, uh, Akviet uh, and I spent a week in each of those areas at different times of the year. I was in uh, Iqaluit in, in late November and I was in Akviet in June and so I was I was really honored to be able to be in both of those parts of the north uh, because so few you know Canadians and, and North Americans get to go to the north to see and experience it in in that regard to look at the world from the north because I will never forget seeing a map that I saw there and it was of course from the north looking south mm-hmm. and you know it was it gave me an entire different respect, perspective just in that simple little map to say yeah the and it did look so different uh, and experienced that world in November as I say I was in the hotel it was a beautiful morning I stepped out I couldn't find anything about the temperature I thought I'd go mm-hmm. out for a little stroll and uh, within 30 seconds my face was freezing you know my glasses were fogged up and I had to run in somewhere to get warm and I eventually made it back to the hotel and um and i said whoa what's the temperature out there and somebody said it's minus 44 and i said (laughs) minus 44 and everybody looked at me and said what winter hasn't even started yet (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. you know so it's like what are you complaining about and um, rv at strong we're wishing them the best of recovery from the pandemic absolutely absolutely so uh thanks again for joining us on the show and koyanamik Mm, Thanks, David. (laughs) All right, Catherine, take care. Really a pleasure speaking with you. I look forward to having you back on the show at a future date. Okay, sounds great. All right, take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That's Catherine Minich. She is a professor in the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University in Ottawa. It's been a pleasure having her on the show. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.